1 Peter 2, 4-12 As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual home, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out in the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we come now to your word, it is our prayer and our desire um, that you would speak to us. Uh, Father, uh, we always do these bold things when we come together. We, we talk to you, we sing about you, we confess big doctrines, big uh, claims about you and the creed. We, um, and, and then we ask that you would speak to us, that you would teach us, that you would clarify who you are to us. Um, and we ask these bold things because you have promised to do great things in and through us and among us. And so we ask you to do that. So will you come by your spirit and work in us now? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, um, great to see you uh, this morning. Um, kind of see you, you know what I mean. Um, would We get to talk about two big uh, questions today, two big issues, and they can be pretty high octane. Here they are. Um, who am I and what am I here for? So you, you recognize those questions, identity, purpose. Um, and part of the reason we're asking those questions is that whenever you go through a time of upheaval, um, those questions inevitably bubble up to the surface, right? Can you identify with that? Um, if you think about your life, um, times of great upheaval, times of big transition, times where you've gone through really intense suffering, or maybe times where you've experienced remarkable success, whenever the apple cart gets turned over, so to speak, either in a good way or in a bad way, we end up needing to push back a little bit, look at our lives and ask the question, given this new upheaval, who am I? Um, am I the same person that I used to be? Uh, what am I here for? Has that changed when a bunch of other things have changed? Question of identity, question of purpose. And those questions never really go away in our lives, right? Whenever you go through times of upheaval in particular, we end up having to kind of recalibrate our identity and our purpose to the new reality we're experiencing. All right, well, everybody here knows that the whole world right now is experiencing 
upheaval. Everyone on this call right now is experiencing upheaval. Our church as a community is experiencing upheaval. Um, and therefore, we get to, all of us, so to speak, recalibrate our identity and our purpose to this new reality um, and to the things that we're learning. Now, go to, your, go to our reading, in particular the first reading from 1 Peter. The reason I say this, all of this is because Peter, the apostle, is writing to a church that's been suffering. Their world has been turned upside down in a variety of ways. Um, earlier in the letter, at the very, very beginning, uh, Peter describes these Christians. It's a group of churches. Um, he describes them as exiles, sojourners, immigrants, refugees. They are people who are experiencing different kinds of difficulty, oppression. And what I want you to see is in this reading, I want you to see how forcefully and confidently and specifically in a targeted way, Peter names their identity and their purpose. Take a look at the reading and look at verse 9. Uh, verse 9, he says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now pause there. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the people of his own possession. That's identity. And then he gives purpose. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now, I realize that a bunch of those ideas are pretty obscure, and we'll talk about them more in a minute. But for now... Just consider what it would be like for you to know deeply who you are and for you to have a deep confidence about your purpose. How would that transform you? How would that transform the way you live life? Or put yourself in the, in, the, uh, in the shoes of the people who first received this letter. Consider what it was like for this church 2,000 years ago. Um, they, they are a network of multi-ethnic congregations. They're small, they're, they feel weak, they're pressurized by their local community, they're pressurized by the Roman Empire, and then they receive this letter. And in this letter, Peter, whom they respect profoundly, speaks to them and says, listen, little struggling, weak churches, you may be confused about who you are and what you're here for, but Peter says to them, but God knows who you are and God has a purpose for you. His identity and his purpose for you will not enslave you, but rather his identity and his purpose for you will liberate you. And therefore, Peter says to these congregations, recalibrate your life to God's identity for you. Recalibrate your life to God's purpose for you. And that's what Peter is saying to these churches 2,000 years ago. But today I want to argue that whatever else God may be doing in this present experience of upheaval, at least one is this. God wants to recalibrate our identity and our purpose. He wants to recalibrate our identity and purpose at an individual level. But he also wants to recalibrate our identity and our purpose at a church level, at a corporate level. 
Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Go back to verse 9 um, and look at those uh, descriptions of identity, those titles. Uh, Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. Now, all of those titles may be obscure to us, but they really, um, they, they, they rung familiar to those who first received this letter. And the reason for that is that they're all rooted in one particular scene in the book of Exodus. It comes from Exodus chapter 19, and we actually looked at this passage a number of months ago. You may remember it. Um, the scene is this in Exodus chapter 19. Israel, the whole nation, is smack in the middle of one of the greatest upheavals, uh, well, the greatest upheaval that they had ever experienced to that point in their history. Uh, just before this, they had been slaves in Egypt for forever. Not forever, but for like 400 years, which might as well be forever, right? And while they were uh, slaves in Egypt, their identity, so obviously they were slaves. Their purpose was, I don't know, survive, something like that. But then, quite unexpectedly, nobody was anticipating this. God breaks in on their lives through the ministry of Moses. God rescues Israel out of Egypt. And now, for the first time in anybody's memory, Israel is out of Egypt and they're free. And they're standing at the foot of Mount Sinai outside Egypt in the desert, and they're looking at each other, and they're saying in so many words, who are we? Who are we now? What is the meaning and the purpose of this rescue that we've experienced, this mercy that we have received? I don't know if they put it that way, but you kind of get the point. And right there, God starts speaking through Moses. And he says, and I'm paraphrasing here, Israel, Israel, I have given you a new identity. It's as if God says to Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai, Israel, I rescued you from Egypt. I carried you on eagle's wings, he says in Exodus chapter 19. In other words, Israel, I airlifted you out of slavery. You did not choose me, Israel. You did not earn your rescue. Rather, God says to Israel, I preemptively chose you because my love always takes the first move. And now it's as if God says to Israel in Exodus chapter 19, Israel, I want to propose. I want to propose. I want you to be my treasured possession. Out of all the world, I want you to live under my focused affection. I want you to live under my affection. And as that happens, I'll teach you how to be holy. What does that mean? Well, it means... I'll teach you how to reflect my own character, to not be defined by the normal patterns that you see in other cultures around you, to not be defined by the patterns of behavior that has uh, 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 exemplified and has happened in your life until up until this point, but rather you're going to be different. You're going to be very different because you're going to reflect my character, God says to Israel. You're not going to be conformists. Instead, you're going to reflect my character, which is to say you're going to be holy. And because you're holy, God says to Israel at Mount Sinai, you're also going to be a royal priesthood. Previously, it's as if God says to Israel, you used to be slaves. You were the lowest status in society, but now you're going to bear the highest dignity. You're going to be royal. You're going to be priestly. And because you're royal and priestly, you're going to have a mission. And your mission will be to represent me to the world and to a world that does not think a God like me exists. That's your new identity, Israel. That's your new mission. And then God asks Israel, will you consent to this? 
Will you consent to this new identity? Will you consent to this new purpose? Now pause. Can you see how absolutely revolutionary this whole thing would be? Here's at least one reason why it's revolutionary. Israel did not achieve this new identity. Israel did not perform into this new identity. Israel didn't look down inside themselves and say, you know, when I look down inside the deep, the depths of who I am, I find myself to be holy and chosen and a royal priesthood and a people belonging to God. That's not how it worked. Rather, all this came from outside them, which is to say they received it as a gift. Israel's new identity at Mount Sinai was a gift of God's mercy, not a gift of their own discovery. Now, back to the story, Israel at Mount Sinai says yes. They consent to this new identity and this new, new purpose. However, it doesn't go great. Because if you read the entirety of the Old Testament, I'm taking hundreds of years of Old Testament history and narrowing it down to something really tiny. What happens is this, over the course of time, Israel, as they experience upheavals in their national life, over the course of hundreds of years, each time they go through a period of upheaval, they, just like we all do, recalibrate their identity and their purpose. However, usually they recalibrate their identity and their purpose away from God's mercy and they recalibrate their identity and their purpose to fit in with the dominant cultures that are around them at the time. So, for instance, God calls them to be holy. Um, in other words, nonconformists who reflect God's character. But through various upheavals over the course of their history, Israel decides repeatedly to set aside God's mercy and instead conform to the dominant cultures that are around them because that seems most compelling to them in the moment. Now, other nations tended to construct their identity through performance or achievement, something like this. They kind of tend to say, we will know who we are when we gain power and pleasure and wealth and status and whatever else. I need to exert so that I can achieve these things and I'll rely upon my own performance and my own power and my own resources in order to get it. Now, Israel starts to follow that, that pattern. And one of the things that's really important to see is that that whole logic is an inversion of mercy. And over time, Israel as they look to themselves rather than to God for their identity and their purpose, there's a, a transformation, but not in a good way, that happens. Instead of being holy, they become conformists. They start to conform to the dominant cultures around them. Uh, instead of receiving their identity through mercy, they start to try to perform it or achieve it or discover it somehow in themselves. And of course, they're doing all of this because they think that the more control they have over their own identity and their own purpose, the more free that they will be. The problem is it doesn't work. Uh, you read through the story of Israel, the, the more they recalibrate their identity away from God's mercy and toward their own performance, ironically, the less free they become. 
until eventually they get conquered, quite literally. Uh, first, Assyria, the empire of Assyria, destroys the northern ten tribes of Israel, and, and those tribes never really recover. And then a little bit later, uh, Babylon, the empire of Babylon comes in and uh, captures the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and take them into exile. And there in exile, they find themselves, instead of being royal priests, they find themselves to be slaves again. And we call this the exile. Uh, it's really one of the darkest moments of Israel's history. And in exile, Israel realizes that in a way they had committed adultery against God. Uh, way back at the Exodus, God had proposed. Uh, he had given himself to Israel in great mercy. And there Israel consented and they entered into this relationship of intimacy. But then over time, Israel had backed out. Now, a little bit of an aside. That's always the way sin works. Uh, sin, one of the ways to think about it, sin is adultery against God. See, God gives, God made us for himself and he, and he designed us to receive our identity from him by mercy, not to uh, perform it or achieve it or discover it so much within ourselves, but rather to receive it as a gift from him. And that gift is supposed to bind us to him in love and in intimacy. But sin, one of the ways to think about sin, is when we check out of that relationship and we substitute it by preferring our own kind of self-constructed identity, purpose, things like that. We run out on God. And when we do that, we think we're seeking freedom. That's our intuition. But when actual fact, we find ourselves alone in the darkness in a deeper kind of slavery. Uh, two weeks ago, um, if you remember, we talked about the half-life, how Jesus leads us from the half-life to a whole life. And this week in the reading, the image is starker. There's light and there's darkness. And the life in the darkness is when we prefer and achieve our own identities. But the problem is we find ourselves, ironically, more uh, conforming to the world around us, less free and more divided. We, we find ourselves uh, entering into conflict with each other uh, very, very quickly and very, very easily. And we find ourselves left in the darkness with Israel in the midst of their exile. And that leads us finally to another upheaval. Because the greatest upheaval in the Bible is not the Exodus when Israel is freed from slavery, nor is it the exile when Israel kind of goes back into slavery. The greatest upheaval in the Bible is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because here's God, God sees Israel and all of us enslaved in our sin, checked out of a relationship with him and preferring the kind of slavery of adultery. And what does God do and how does God respond to that? He could just kind of check out and say, fine, have it your way, I'm out of here. But what he does is he steps closer to us. In fact, he seeks us out in the midst of our darkness and in the midst of our slavery. And he does that by becoming one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ is God become human. In, in fact, in, more specifically, he's God as a human Israelite. And Jesus embodies God's perfect identity. Jesus is God's perfect treasured possession. He lives under the, the affection of God perfectly and enjoys it and is motivated by it. You can see that in our second reading in the gospel, but I won't go there. Jesus is also perfectly holy, not conforming to this world, but reflecting the Father's character perfectly. And he's also a royal priest. He's perfectly free, and he uses his freedom to represent God to the world perfectly. And God chose Jesus to be the instrument of our rescue. And so on the cross, Jesus Christ changed places with us. He entered our darkness so that we could receive his light. He experienced the darkness of no mercy so that we could receive new mercy. He was stripped of all of his dignity and his identity so that he could share his identity and his dignity with us, even though we don't deserve it. Now keep all that in your mind and come back to the reading. Because here's the Apostle Peter. He's writing to a bunch of small churches. They're weak in the world's eyes. They're multi-ethnic. They're small. They're pressurized by the local community. They're, they're, they're made up of a bunch of people who, uh, without Christ, would be enemies of each other. But now, through Christ, they're being reconciled to each other. How can Peter speak to this group and so be so confident about their identity and their mission? Well, the answer is in verse 10. Look at it. Peter knew that this small group had been called out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. Previously, they'd not been a people. They'd been divided from each other. And, but now, they've been reconciled to God and therefore reconciled to each other. And now they are one united people of God, very diverse, but nevertheless united together. Once they had not received mercy, but now they are animated by the mercy of Jesus Christ. And it was that story of being called out of darkness and into God's marvelous light through the mercy of Jesus that now told them who they were. That identity of being transformed through the mercy of Jesus from darkness and into light then led them to mission, to purpose. Now, we don't have time, but if you read the rest of the letter of Peter, what you find is that Peter tells these churches, he says, listen, live your lives out of this new identity, having been the beneficiaries of God's mercy. Live your lives describing God's beauty. Describe his beauty with your words. Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, but also reflect God's character with your deeds. And Peter says, when, as you do that, even your enemies, the ones who hate you, the ones who abuse you, the ones whom you have good reason to hate, they will look at you and they will see your holy lives. They will see a reflection of God and they'll finally have to push back and admit there must be a God of mercy somewhere if there's people like this around. Can you see how identity moves to mission? And purpose. Now, friends, you and I, we, like I said at the beginning, we are smack in the middle of upheaval. And all of us in this time are having to recalibrate our identities and our purpose. Who am I? Who am I now? What am I here for? What am I supposed to be about? 
And the question for all of us is, how are you going to address those questions? And the, for a lot of us, the intuition is going to be to, to try to achieve identities um, or to perform identities or to look inside us and find something new that we can then roll out as a resource to reconstruct our identity and our purpose. But I want you to say, I want to say, be very careful about where that path leads. It's intuitive, but it doesn't always lead to freedom. In fact, it can lead to darkness. It can lead to a kind of slavery to our own selves. And it can lead away from God and into a darkness that is deep in this life and deeper in the next. And into all of that right now, Jesus is calling you. It's a bold thing for me to say, isn't it? But that's fine. Jesus right now is calling you. He is calling you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And he's calling you with one word. The one word he's calling you with is mercy. Mercy. Mercy is not something you can achieve. Mercy is not something you can perform. Mercy is something you have to receive. It's a gift from someone else. And so Jesus' question is, will you consent to his terms of mercy? It's the same question that God asked Israel after the Exodus. Will you consent, God asked Israel after the Exodus, will you consent to being moved by my power from being uh, from slavery to being a royal priesthood? Will you consent to that? Will you consent to being moved from conforming to this world to instead reflecting God's character in holiness? Will you consent to that? Will you consent to being moved from living for yourself to instead living under God's affection as his treasured possession and that being the motivation of all that you are and all that you do those are the questions that god asked israel at the exodus but jesus is asking us that those questions now and when we consent to his mercy it leads to a dramatic shift in our lives um, when we consent to christ he ends up transforming every bit of who we are and every bit of our purpose um, all of our old identities will either die or be transformed. When we consent to Christ, it leads to a dramatic shift. And there's a danger in kind of soft peddling it. It's a big deal. It's as drastic a transformation as what happens when you walk into a pitch black dark room and then you turn on the light. It's a dramatic shift, but it's a good shift. And for some of us, Jesus is saying, I'm ready to call you out of darkness and into my marvelous light. Will you consent? And maybe you've never consented before this point. Will you? And for others, um, we've been walking with Jesus for maybe years. Um, however, what we need to be careful about is this. For, for some of us, little by little, uh, we have subtly recalibrated our identity and our purpose, not so much to the mercy of Jesus, but, um, but to the darkness. And it's a very subtle thing. And I can't see it necessarily in you, but you can ask the Holy Spirit to diagnose it in your own hearts. And this is a perfect time for that to happen because in the midst of this present upheaval, one of the possible gifts is this. This is a moment when we get to recalibrate our identity and our mission to Jesus's mercy. And so Jesus is saying to some of us, do not forget that I called you out of 
darkness and into my marvelous light. And when I did that, I gave you a new name. I gave you the name chosen and holy and royal and priest and treasured by God. That, says Jesus to many of us, that is your name. So stop flirting with the darkness and go into that identity derived from mercy and let it lead you out to a mission. And the mission will be to describe and reflect God's beauty in this world. And finally, it has implications for us in our corporate life as a church. Um, you know, we as a church, we're in the middle of upheaval. There's more upheaval to come. We're going to have to figure out what um, reopening might look like, although pause. We never closed, friends. We just changed some of our strategies to online. But in any event, um, what are we going to be like in the next months? What are the changes that we're facing? I don't know. There's going to be a lot of them, and I can't anticipate all of them, and you can't either. But I do know this. The most important thing for us as a church is not so much when do we get back to physically meeting together and when can we get it all back to the way it once was in January or something like that. That's not the fundamental question. The fundamental question is this. How fully in this season are, are we going to allow Jesus to recalibrate our lives and our church to his mercy? How fully will we allow and seek after Jesus to captivate us with his mercy again and to captivate us more deeply so that our deepest identity becomes chosen by mercy, priests for the lost, reflections of God's character, treasured by a loving father? How deep will we allow that mercy to reach in our own lives? Because the deeper it goes, the more we will be ready for the mission that the Lord is preparing for us. So Emmanuel, will we consent to the mercy of Jesus? And will we consent more? That is the key question. Amen? Amen. Hello everyone, my name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.